I want you to turn with me to Job 42, and I'm going I'm to give you a little assignment this week. We will be for the next couple of weeks in the book of Ezekiel. Now, you know, that's not page turn and reading typically. So, um, so at least get to Ezekiel 43 next week, Ezekiel 43. We're just going to take a couple of isolated passages out of there and out of the next couple of weeks. So Ezekiel 43 as we continue to talk about this stuff, and you'll, we'll kind of, I'll reference it a little bit today so it'll kind of bridge the gap some, uh, but we've been in Job for the last three or four weeks and, and in Jeremiah before that, and we've kind of been dealing with this issue of having a hope that sustains me in time of trial. You ever have anybody talk bad about you behind your back and then you kind of overheard them? There was a guy that was, that was a produce manager at a large grocery store why are you laughing about that? This is no laughing matter. There's a guy who was a produce manager at a large grocery store. And uh, a, a woman came up to him and handed him a, a, uh, 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 a head of lettuce. And she said, I would like to buy half of this head of lettuce, please. Could you cut it in half for me? And he had been trained well and that the customer is always right. And so he says, well, of course. So he goes back in the, hang on just a minute, and he goes back in the workroom, and there are a couple of co-workers back there, and he said, some idiot out here wants a half a head of lettuce. And about that time, he notices the woman is standing behind him. <laughs> and he says, and this nice lady wants the other half. Um, <laughs> you ever had that happen when you're saying something ugly about somebody and they're standing behind you? I never have. Well, the truth is, Job got caught doing that to God. You know, he got caught questioning God out loud and uh, his friends, you know, these guys that are, quote, friends, got caught doing the same thing and God heard every word. So we're going to kind of get to the point this week where we're dealing with what happens in the aftermath. Now, Bildad, you remember the the... Uh, he was the little short guy, Bildad the shoe height. Um, <laughs> he was the last of Job's three friends to speak in chapter 25, and he only speaks briefly, about six verses. He adds nothing new to the other friend's uh, indictment against Job. And then Job has a guy visiting by the name of Elihu. Now, he's not, he's not one of the original three friends, and he's not mentioned until like chapter 32 and um, Job nor God really responds to Elihu's thoughts and the man just kind of mysteriously shows up and offers his thoughts and then he disappears. We don't know a whole lot about him. Then in, um, in chapter 38, God finally speaks. Now I want you to turn with me to chapter 38. We've got to read just a little bit of this. I love when, the, when it all turns in the book of Job and God finally speaks out of the silence. Um, remember now, Job doesn't know what you and I know about what happened in chapter 1 and 2 when God and Satan are wrangling over his life. And uh, here's how God begins. Then the Lord answered Job, Job out of the whirlwind. You know, it was bound to happen. It was bound to happen. You read it, and it looks like Job, doesn't it? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. What is he telling him there in verse 2? Get ready for it, okay? Uh, verse 3, and where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. 
Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or on, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now God is asking rhetorical questions there to kind of put Job in his place. God accuses Job here of lacking knowledge. He was the one, not Job, who established and sustained creation. Then in chapter 40, God uh, invites Job to respond to his questions. Now, it's interesting. I think Job is acting uh, kind of wisely here. But Job declines to answer, merely citing his own unworthiness to do so. But God's not satisfied with Job's reaction. He wants an answer. So by chapter 42, Job, uh, God has demanded a real answer, and Job is required to answer for what he had been saying over these chapters. And now, um, and now he is going to respond um, uh, to God's um, uh, questions here. Now, we said last week um, uh, that, that our, our place here, and Job finds himself in the place of speaking badly about God. And we said last week that we use this theological term, theodicy, that means to speak justly about God, justly about God, correctly, honestly, truthfully about God, in the context of, um, of pain or suffering or some calamity in my life. Okay, so... Job is going to begin now to speak justly about God, and we're going to kind of listen in. Let's go to verse 1 in Job 42. And Bob, do you mind to read the first six verses? Okay, now, we're going to deal with um, Job now beginning to acknowledge God justly. And in verse 1, he really acknowledges this truth. And by the way, one of the things you and I got to come to terms with is, it is a good thing for me to read the Bible and study and learn about God. It's a, I can't imagine a better, more worthwhile, uh, wise pursuit. That being said... We're never going to figure him out completely. Okay? Where God's ways will always be a bit mysterious to us. And that's kind of what Job's up against here. So he begins here by acknowledging truthfully that God can do whatever he wills. In fact, wouldn't we argue that that's part of Job's disappointment? Job spoke justly of God's ability, didn't he? All through this thing, you can do, you can do, you have the ability, you are able. It's just that Job is frustrated with why he doesn't do something about his situation. Okay, So he acknowledges here rightly, truthfully, that God can do whatever he wills. That's part of his own disappointment. God lacks no ability here. And then he goes on in verse 3 to uh, talk about um, uh, the details. It's interesting here. Let, let me read verse 3 again. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared that, that which I did not understand. Now, Job is quoting God. I've declared that which I did not understand, Job says. Now he's quoting himself. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. First of all, uh, God has, found it necess- uh, has not found it necessary to tell Job all of the details. What details did, Job, did God not tell Job about? About his, his discussion with Satan over the fate of Job's life. Right? That's in chapter 1 and 2. He just doesn't feel like he's got to tell Job all about that. Now, I'll, I'll deal with that in just a minute. Let's go, if somebody would, go to chapter 2 and read 5 down through 10. Chapter 2, read verse 5 down through 10. Somebody got that? Interestingly, Job gets it mostly right. Uh, His wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? And he says, will we accept good from God but not the bad? Okay, now, um, um, he's kind of dealing partially right with some of those things. But you at least got to hand it to him that in all of this stuff, he has not cursed God, but he has questioned him. Now, when I start thinking about the whys of this situation, I start wondering why, why didn't God tell Job what had been happening behind the scenes? You know, you and I get to read it 3,000 years later. Why didn't God just, 4,000 years later, why, why didn't God just say, well, Job, uh, this, is, this is actually, I'm patting on, you on the back by allowing you to go through all this. Why didn't God just say it? But he didn't. He never says that. In fact, we only know about it after Job is long off the scene. Um, uh, we know about it because somebody writes the story. Why not? Why didn't God do a little bit of image management by placing the blame on Satan where it belongs? That would be a lot easier for us to kind of deal with, right? Why didn't God just say, well, it's the devil's fault? He doesn't do that, does he? This is interesting here. Hey, he's certainly proving his point. You're right, Doyle. He's proven his point, and, and by the way, if he tells Job what's going on, it makes you wonder how, what the outcome would be like. But I begin to wonder about why doesn't he uh, resolve the bigger question here? And I wonder, if he had done that, there would be less room for faith in Job's life. Think about that for a minute. Plus, it would take away his free choice. It, took, it would take away his free choice. Wouldn't it recognize, though, if I knew everything that was going on behind the scenes, it would lessen my need for the faith to follow step by endless step. 
until the Lord makes. And, and by the way, uh, please pray for, for uh, Betty Fair and her family this week. You know, Phil died a few days ago, and, and uh, they buried him in Anderson yesterday. And, and uh, Don and I were talking earlier on this week, Don Pestles and I were talking earlier this week about how Phil's life of faith has now become sight. His faith has become sight. Bob, you got a comment? No. You ever have to do that with your kids? You make a decision they don't understand, they want you to explain. You know, you just, it, it just enough to say, we did the right thing. Right? And yet they want to know. They want to know the answer. Why? Why or why not? Or are we there yet? Yeah. They, okay. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that faith gets bypassed if he tells me all of the issues. I also realize that if God had told me 30 years ago some of the things I was going to get into as a result of his leadership in my life, wow, I would have, I'm afraid I would have bailed. I would have said, no, I don't want that. I want to do something else. And yet, he allows me to go through these things as he builds my backbone and as he solidifies my faith in him. Roger spoke well earlier today when he said, you don't want to be a football fan who wears orange this weekend. OSU, Tennessee, Texas, yeah, what? I mean, you just stay away from orange and you're okay. Uh, how, how do I understand these things? Well, sometimes... I have to have faith despite my understanding. Do you recognize that from that famous passage that we often quote about prayer from Philippians 2, he gives me peace that passes understanding. He gives me peace that transcends understanding. There are lots of times in my life when I get peace from God and I never get understanding. Maybe 20 years later, I'll understand it. But for now, what he grants me is peace in the meantime. It's interesting uh, as we read verse 4, Job tries to kind of sidestep God's question here uh, by citing his own vileness. I'm not worthy, I'm, it, so I don't even want to answer you. And God doesn't let him sidestep the question. And so he has this encounter with God that exceeds all previous experiences in his life. Up till now, I want to submit to you, up until now, Job had only heard about God or of God. Now he hears from him. You catch that? Up till now, he had heard a lot about God. In fact, he had a pretty good theology. He heard a lot about God. In fact, he was able to kind of um, defend God in the, in the in the face of his friends, where actually he was defending himself as much as he was defending God. No, I didn't do anything that God's punishing me for when he was talking with his alleged friends. But he only knew about God. Now he, he gets to experience him. Um, uh, he, has, uh, he hears from him directly. Now here's a question I want you to think about just a little bit before we move on. Are there things that you yet don't know about God? 
please, everybody, nod your head yes. Okay, all right. That's a good thing to acknowledge. There's some things I, I know about God I don't know about God. Uh, one apologetic argument is this. If this circle, if a large circle represents the sum total of all knowledge, okay, sum total of all knowledge, what I would have to acknowledge is that my, my frame of reference or my knowledge is, is a, a, a dot on, a, on the head of a pen, all right? Isn't it interesting that people who are pretty intellectual, who would have trouble maybe even admitting that, that in, in the context of all human knowledge, uh, my knowledge is really small, infinitesimal. You would have to be God to really know that there was no God. Do you catch that? He knows it all. You know just a little bit. You'd actually have to kind of be God to know there was no God. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but think about it for just a minute. Isn't it interesting that it's a, a beginning of faith to acknowledge what I don't know? So, I need to be on a lifelong journey, a lifelong trek to find out about it. How do I do that? Read his book. I mean, okay. It's just kind of an autobiography here. Read about his son. When I read the Gospels, what I acknowledge is there are lots of times in the Gospels when the, Jesus is saying, I want to tell you what the Father's really like. So read the Gospels. Get to know his son, Jesus. You'll get to know what God's like. But I need to acknowledge that my, my frame of reference is pretty tiny. I need to expand that. I need to learn from it. And I need to acknowledge that there are some things that I just don't know about God. Job had to come to that point. And so in verse 6, he responds the way he should. Uh, I want somebody, here's where we're going to bridge the gap just briefly over to Ezekiel. At least you can get in the habit of finding it. It's to the right quite a bit. If you get to Daniel, you've gone just too far, just a little bit too far. Um, he's between Isaiah and Daniel in that section right there. Ezekiel 27, 30. If somebody can find that, look in your table of contents in your Bible or something. Great, Stella. Okay, now, Stella's a Bible scholar. Tell me what they're doing there when they roll in, in dust and ashes. They're mourning. They're repenting and mourning. What Job does here, you remember when he gets all this bad news, he tears his clothing and sits in sackcloth and ashes. That is a, that is a statement of grief, but it's also a statement of repentance. Here, he says, he, he kind of responds that way again in verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. He says, uh, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He's sorry, and that's what he's saying. I need to come to the point where um, as, as I respond to God, I respond to God the way I should, and lots of times that's in an attitude of repentance, sorrow over my sin. Okay, let's go to the next section. Somebody read 7, 8, and 9. This is, this is going to get better, so here we go.
give Tom a hand, will you, for getting through all those names? That, that was really good, man. And he said, he said, Job, not Job, too. Did you catch that? Okay, I love this. In fact, as I read, read the title of this paragraph earlier this week when I was beginning to study this, I thought, oh, this is going to be really good. You ever been in that plot? You're watching a movie, and the bad guy has prevailed all the way through the movie, and now Superman shows up, and it's, it's like they're talking bad about Superman, and he's standing right behind him. You know, and this is going to be good. That, that's, when you get to verse 7, that's how you ought to feel. Oh, God is going to talk to Job's buddies. This ought to be good. And that's what it is. Um, uh, he literally here, uh, having corrected Job, Job uh, God now turns to Job's friends. Now, what you and I've got to catch is that Job wasn't always right, but he was way more right than his friends were, okay? Um, they have misrepresented God worse than Job had, and they lied about Job. What did they lie about? His sin. Evidently, you're a bad guy. We just didn't know it. Evidently, you got some pet sin back there. You've been hiding from us, and you couldn't hide it from God, and now he's, he's uh, uh, punishing you for all that. And, they, and they, day after day after endless day, they comforted Job with those words, right? So God turns to them and says, you know what? You're more wrong than Job ever thought about being. And he gives them an assignment. What's his assignment? It's going to cost him, yeah. Seven sacrifices of two different kinds, seven rams and seven what else? Seven bulls. That sounds kind of expensive to me, doesn't it, do you? For, so if I understand it, it means 21 of those things, each of them. They're going to sacrifice them to God, but Job is going to, Help them offer the sacrifice. In other words, it'll be in front of Job. They're not sacrificing to Job. Don't get that. Don't do that. Remember, we've got to know something about God. That's certainly not what God would, would do. They're going to sacrifice these to God in repentance, but in the presence of Job. And God has said, ask Job to pray for you and I'll forgive you. Now, all of this, if, if I get it right, is going to prove to them, to the friends, and by the way, I love God in this they're going to, he's going to prove finally here, without a doubt, who is really right in this. And it ain't them. It's not Eliphaz and Bildad and uh, what's the other guy's name? Eliphaz? Yeah. Uh, Bildad's a shoe height guy. So, yeah. Um, he's going to prove here that he's right. That Job has been at least more right than they were. An expensive lesson. Now, I want us to go for just a minute to Isaiah chapter 55. As we read it, you may recognize it, but it certainly applies here. Can I fully understand the wisdom of God in a moment of pain in my life? I'm going to submit to you that I never can come to terms with that uh, till typically years later. I may come to the end of my life before I ever really understand it. It may be that it's according to the old gospel song, we'll understand it better by and by, which means in heaven, all right? Could be. Listen to what God says here about his ways. 
Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. Somebody read that. Thank you. Jan, I'm going to ask you to read it one more time because I've got to let it sink in a little bit. I want us all to do that. Listen carefully. Interesting here. You know, there's sometimes we try to humanize God. Anthropomorphize or whatever that word is. We give him human characteristics. We call him our father, and that's something that Jesus gave the privilege to do when he was walking the planet, right? But frankly, um, some of us didn't exactly win the lottery when we got a father. Now, I did, and you know I did because I talk about him all the time. But some of us, um, Rhonda and I have been talking this week about people that we've encountered even recently who had a terrible childhood. Um, I'm reading, if, whether you're a Sooners fan or not, read the back page of the sports page today about, uh, about Brian Bosworth and about the, the kind of, uh, the way his dad handled him as a kid and how that kind of made him into the Boz. We try to make God like us instead of the other way around. The truth is here, the truth is that you and I are made in the image of God. We're created in his image, but he is not like us. And we're really glad he's not. I need to become more like him, but I can't press God into a mold of being like me. You don't want that God. Can I tell you that? We are made into his image, but that doesn't mean he's like me. So, here, he says, um, um, using the pen of Isaiah, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. That kind of gives me this picture again, doesn't it? That there's some of his actions I'm going to understand in the moment, and there's a whole bunch of them I'm not going to understand in the moment. Because his thoughts and his ways are above my ways. Now look at verse 9 here in 42 again. So the three friends came and uh, they brought their sacrifices. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them. They sacrificed all these animals. And the Lord accepted Job. Now it's interesting here. There is an indication that God does not accept uh, all of this until he sees how Job deals with these kind of not really good friends and how he deals with them. And I think it's wonderful here. He doesn't offer or we don't see an I told you so attitude in Job's prayer for them. I told you. He doesn't have to say that, does he? God's done all that for him. And so he offers uh, a prayer for them um, a prayer of intercession as they offer a prayer of repentance and all of this sac expensive sacrifice of repentance. And God accepts them and accepts him. Job's friends are um, not too proud to obey here. They do obey. Now, we've got to look at one more verse. I want you to look at verse 10, and then we're going to apply some of this as we, as we move out of the hour. 
All right? Here we go. Here's, here's the outcome. Okay, first of all, let's go, to, um, let's go to the very first of Job, and then we'll get there. Let's go to Job 1. <clears throat> I'm going to read verse 3, or if you beat me there, read verse 3. Now, go to verse 10 and 42. Here's what happens. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had had twofold. First of all, I want you to put in that last blank there under the restoration. The reversal of Job's fortune doesn't take place until his intercession on behalf of his friends, until he prays for them. He restores it. Listen to what all came back to Job. Verse 11. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. They haven't been coming to him before. And they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities the Lord had brought on him. Each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. They gave him money. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. You can't, it's like double what he had before. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemimiah and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hempuk. I think I got through that one. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived another 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations. And he died an old man and full of days. Did he get his children back from the first calamity? No. And he lived in sadness all his days over that. But God gave him back and blessed him in the light of the faith that he expressed. Now, here's some hard lessons I think Job learned, and then I can learn looking over his shoulder. Here we go. I think Job, by this time, certainly as we read through chapter 38 and 39, and by the time we get to verse 42, Job regrets having spoken against God. I, I think to question God is one thing, but occasionally Job kind of spoke against him. He didn't curse him. He didn't quit to call out to him. That Quit calling out to him. That was a good thing. But I think he regrets having spoken against God. I think number two, he realizes his rightful place before God. Don't you know that he found his rightful place when God started asking him all of those rhetorical questions? Where were you when I? Where were you when I? Where were you when I? Okay? He realizes his rightful place. And he resolves to move forward with a different perspective. Can I learn from those three things? Oh, you bet. We must never think that we fully understand God or even His activity in, in our lives. I, I just can't fully understand completely what He's doing sometimes. We are created in His image, but He cannot be domesticated like I would domesticate uh, some kind of a house animal. 
by the way, that's what a lot of people wanted to do in, in Job's day. They wanted to put God, they wanted to cast him in bronze and put him on the mantle place, and they'd call on him when they needed him. By the way, that didn't end 4,000 years ago. People still want to call on God only when they need him. Marlene caught me in the, in the uh, uh, narthex last week. Is that what that place is called? I think it is. And um, she actually didn't tell me about a poem. I'd heard this poem years ago. She quoted this poem to me. Um, it's called The Weaver. You ever heard it? It was wonderful. And, and I'm, I'm going to guess you didn't even look this up. You just wrote it um, as you remembered it perfectly. My life is like a weaving between the Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaves so steadily. Sometimes he weaveth sorrow and in my foolish pride. I forget he sees the upper while I the underside. But when the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly, he will unveil and reveal all the reasons why. The dark threads were so needful in the master's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver to the pattern of his plan. There are very, oh, then you, was that the end of it? Because you write me a paragraph after that that I probably shouldn't quote. Um, it, nothing bad about it. She wouldn't say ugly things. She was just personal. Do you catch the thought? My life is a tapestry. And I look at the top and I think this isn't going the way I want to. And, and uh, maybe I'm looking at the backside and I see colors I don't like. But when I turn it over, I see the pattern that God has wrought. The 139th Psalm, David acknowledges, you have knit me together. And you guide my path. Tell you about a prayer I've been praying lately. Uh, it's kind of a new prayer. I, I've stopped praying for God to lead me. <laughs> Cocky, huh? You know what? I realized th as I looked through the last, certainly the last 37, 38 years of my life, God has led me, led me, led me, led me. What I'm starting to pray now is, Lord, I know you're leading me. Teach me to follow. Teach me to follow. And to give you the benefit of the doubt when I don't see anything but the underside of the tapestry. Okay, we'll be in the book of Ezekiel next week. Good luck finding that one, okay? And I'll see you then. <laughs>